We continue in this series on origins. Our world, humanity, our relationship to our creator. And what we found over these past few months is that these beginnings, sadly, very quickly lead to an ending in the judgment of the flood, Noah's Ark. Noah and his family are rescued, and now they're ready for a new beginning. Uh, the verses in verse, uh, chapter 9 this morning that we'll cover are really tempting to skip because a, a guy gets drunk, passes out naked in his tent, his youngest son sees him, which earns him a curse from his father upon the next generation. What in the world is there that is redeeming and spiritually nourishing as a takeaway from this picture of family dysfunction? Well, we trust that Scripture is provided in its entirety for our benefit to teach us something about who God is and how he's related to uh, humans over the course of salvation history. Um, There's a part of me that's terrified when I turn to a passage like this, not having any clue how in the world it's going to get preached. Uh, But there's also an excitement and anticipation because uh, as we delve into God's Word, we find treasure and sometimes in unexpected places. I think this is one of them. We'll also see this morning how not to interpret this passage because immeasurable destruction has come from really bad interpretation of this portion of Genesis chapter 9. If you're able to, would you stand with me as I read Scripture? Genesis 9, starting in verse 18. Listen carefully. These are God's words. The sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These were the three sons of Noah, and from them came the people who were scattered over the whole earth. Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders. Then they walked in backward and covered their father's naked body. Their faces were turned the other way so that they would not see their father naked. When Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. He also said, Praise be to the Lord, The God of Shem, may Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend Japheth's territory. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem. And may Canaan be the slave of Japheth. This is God's word. Let's pray. Speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. We pray that you're speaking through this word by the power of your spirit would give us clarity that it would point us to your perfect heart of love, that it would show us something amazing of your plan to rescue, to save sinners like us. May you be glorified in this time. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. We start with this idea, keeping the end in mind. Uh, Over the last few weeks, we've talked about the flood as judgment upon sin and now a fresh start for humanity. There's hope 
as human civilization gets ready to spread throughout the whole earth. Verse 19 starts this way. These were the three sons of Noah, and from them came the people who were scattered over the whole earth. The next verse tells us how Noah started his new life after the ark. He started with something simple, farming. In fact, when verse 20 describes him as a man of the soil, it's literally this in the Hebrew, ish, man, ha-adamah. Notice something about the, the word for land, earth, soil. I helped you with a little bit of an underline and a capital A. It's the same as the word for Adam. That's where he gets his name. He is earth. He, he is from the soil. Noah is a new Adam. He's, here's the, the, the comparisons, the similarities between Genesis 1 and Genesis 9. Adam ate the fruit in the middle of the garden and sinned. Noah drank from the fruit of the vine in the middle of his tent. Same Hebrew word that we find there. And both sins result in an awareness of nakedness, interestingly. Chapter 9, we said a few weeks ago, starts with a repeat of Genesis chapter 1, another connection. We call this the cultural mandate, the, the commandment to humanity, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. But sin's effects on creation now, since Genesis chapter 3, mean that subduing the earth is a lot more frustrating than it was supposed to be. And so weeds crowd out crops. Insects and disease ravage plants. Rain doesn't fall when you need it to, and when it does, way too much comes all at once. And when Noah plants a vineyard, instead of Noah subduing the earth, the fruit of the earth ends up subduing him. He gets drunk. He passes out naked in his own tent. And, and we'd, we'd say, well, sure, he, he's in his own private space. He's not walking around town. Uh, you know, you, you shouldn't get uh, drunk. You shouldn't let excess um, overtake your, your, your character, your behavior. But what's that bad about seeing a dad naked in his own tent? Well, first, in the Old Testament, nakedness is consistently associated with a sense of disgrace. It starts really early on, Genesis chapter 3. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned by eating the forbidden fruit, the very first thing we read is about their self-awareness that they're naked. Nothing changed about their bodies. There was nothing wrong with their bodies but the feeling of being exposed, the, the, the sense that you are now seen for who you really are. And for Adam and Eve, that meant sinners, rebels, distrusting the heart of God who was and still is and always will be perfectly loving and wise and caring for his creation. That realization makes Adam and Eve want to hide. Noah is also exposed not just physically, but morally. And when he's seen like that, it adds to the disgrace. You know, until this passage, all that we've read about the man Noah are glowing descriptions. 
And so take a look. Uh, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, and that's contrasted with all the rest of humanity in chapter 6. Right after that, Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Striking words. And then Noah did everything just as God commanded him, twice in chapter 6 and chapter 7 in the building of the ark. But here, toward the end of his life, he stumbles badly. It'll happen to Moses much later on. Moses, who came out of shepherding after a lifetime of shepherding to face Pharaoh, to put Pharaoh in his place as a mere human ruler. Moses, who faithfully led Israel through the, the, the wilderness toward the promised land for 40 years. But Moses, who distrusted God in an interesting scene toward the end of his life. And as a result, wasn't allowed to, to enter the promised land. He just climbed a mountain and looked from afar. That was his punishment. Late in life. If you uh, do any research of a mutual fund on a website or in a prospectus, you'll come across a warning mandated by law that sounds like this. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. However well you've started out in life, whatever streaks you felt like you have gotten on in obeying God, in serving him, of all the good that you have done, past performance, the question is how you'll finish. Keeping the end in mind trusts that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. God will do this. God will preserve me. God will give me grace. Absolutely. Keeping the end in mind starts there. But keeping the end in mind also rigorously self-assesses, looks in the mirror, self-assesses based on what the Bible says about spiritual maturity. Not merely the external. I go to church, I do the good things. Certainly not the way you vote, the, what, what causes you champion, but it rigorously self-assesses based on what the Bible has to say. Keeping the end in mind also pays attention to the trajectory of that growth. Do I look more like Jesus in 2022 than I did in 2021 and certainly back in 2012? Or am I merely treading water, feeling good about past performance? I'm, I'm not like those people. I'm not that bad. Or do you look less like Jesus in 2022? Keeping the end in mind pays attention to trajectory. Which way am I going? Am I going or just drifting? And, and one more idea. How many fingers? Keeping the end in mind humbly asks for honest feedback, whether affirmation or correction from godly men and women around you, because every inclination of the human heart is towards sin. Genesis 6, before the ark and the flood, Genesis 8, after the flood, both affirm. Still the case about every single one of us. I, I don't share this picture of Noah and, and Moses and these thoughts about keeping the end in mind and stumbling late in life to make you afraid of failure. That's not my intent. But when you do fail, 
when you do make a misstep in life, and you will, and I will, do you see the depth of your sin and are you grieved by it? Or have you grown accustomed to it? And it's no big deal because you say you live under grace. It's forgiven. Move on. If you don't see the reality of your sin, over time your heart will only harden. And if someone else loves you enough to point it out, hopefully gently, hopefully based on Scripture, as your heart hardens, you'll dismiss them. You'll ignore them. You'll call them legalists. You'll say they're misguided, they're imbalanced. But if you do see your sin, if you face the reality in the spiritual mirror, God's grace is enough as you run to Jesus. Keeping the end in mind, secondly, sin is like PFAs. We'll get there in a little bit. Verse 18 lists the three sons of Noah, but there's an extra detail that our English Bibles put in parenthesis. Ham was the father of Canaan. Why mention only one grandson before we know anything about the brothers, Shem, Ham, and Japheth? And Canaan, by the way, is the fourth son of the youngest brother, not a significant birth order slot in a patriarchal society that highlights the firstborn of every generation. In verse 22, here's the second mention of Ham. And the first thing it says is the father of Canaan. Why is this so relevant? The youngest son's fourth son, grandson of Noah. Back up a second from Genesis chapter 9. We believe Moses was the author of Genesis. And not only Genesis, but the next four books of the Bible that comprise the Torah or the Pentateuch, as we call it, from um, Latin Greek. Moses would have written all five of these first books of the Bible towards the end of his lifetime, especially as Israel was traveling through the wilderness toward the promised land, also known as the land of Canaan. And so when the first generation of Israelites would have heard this message from Moses, Genesis chapter 9, Mentioning Ham, the son of Canaan, Ham, or the, the, Ham, the father of Canaan, twice, the Israelites, about to enter the promised land, would have said, ah, that's where these people came from. Because they heard about the Canaanites well before they got there. Moses, God through Moses, was warning the Israelites, when you get there, this is, the, this is what the people are going to be like. They, they worship all kinds of false gods. They engage in sexual immorality in the course of their religion. They will lead you astray. Don't marry their wives. Don't give your daughters as wives to their sons. Stay away. You are set apart, holy. So they would have heard about the Canaanites well before they got there and, and, and thought, ah, that's where they came from. Ah, that's why there is such animosity toward them because they be, began to taste the, the, the attitude of the peoples of the Canaanites. Multiple peoples um, comprise the peoples of Canaan. And then uh, thirdly, they would have also said, ah, 
That's how this promise of God that we will inherit that land, as unbelievable as it sounds, because we're just a nation of ex-slaves with no military training, uh, and and we're just wandering through the desert, um, wondering where there will be water and food to feed us next. That's how the promise of God that we'll inherit that land is is actually reality. It goes back to Genesis chapter 9. We don't know exactly what Ham's sin was. He peeks into dad's tent and he goes, oops, didn't know, and he leaves, right? Nothing wrong with that, if that were the case. Obviously, there was more. We know Ham told his two brothers, but did he tell others? We know he merely saw, but did he mock or disrespect in another way, sins of the heart and mind? Did he self-righteously delight in the sins of his father? Maybe his dad had corrected him, and now Ham's like, not so hot of a preacher of righteousness are you now, dad? Ha! You're just like the rest of us. Much later, through Moses, the fifth commandment would be among the ten, And it would command the people, honor your father and mother, but that would not have been new news to an ancient people. It would have been embedded in um, honorable society to honor your parents. All we know is that Shem and Japheth, the other two brothers, in contrast, verse 23 tells us, and it's an interesting detail in this story, took great care in preserving their dad's dignity they grab an extra blanket. They put it over their shoulders. I, this is how I picture it. And they walk backwards and, and they see his feet and then they start dropping the blanket and lay it over his naked body, being careful all the while to look the other way. Here's the absolute wrong interpretation of the sin of Ham and the wrong interpretation of the curse that Noah pronounces on his descendants. Verses 25, 26, and 27 repeat three times that Canaan, uh, Ham, Ham's son Canaan, will be the lowest of slaves to his brothers. And then verse 26, may Canaan be the slave of Shem, oldest brother, and then 27, may Canaan be the slave of Japheth, middle brother. Three times. I'll quote an American pastor, sadly, from 1835, and a pastor to illustrate this absolute wrong way of interpreting this passage. He wrote this, The intent of this prophetic denunciation, the curse, is that the posterity, the descendants of Ham, would be a, become a degraded, servile race and eventually fall under the domination of the descendants of the other sons, Shem and Japheth. This extraordinary prediction has been Wonderfully verified, sad words. The posterity of Shem spread over Asia while that of Japheth possessed Europe to whom Ham's posterity, the miserable Africans, have for immemorial ages been in slavery, either as conquered nations or as individuals transported to America. How sad to imagine that Samuel Doggett, in service to his Lord and Savior, 
read the Bible and came up with that conclusion in our country's history. That interpretation is a horrific conclusion to draw from Genesis chapter 9. And we should be ashamed that that has ever been characteristic of the American church. We should be ashamed. But Doggett is far from alone in using Genesis chapter 9 to justify slavery. Genesis 9 has been used to justify the Crusades, the Rwandan genocide, and American slavery and segregation just to list a few ugly examples. And, and this isn't just limited to Christian thinkers. Jewish and Muslim writers and leaders have, over the centuries, quoted Genesis 9 in their arguments. It's not an exaggeration when David Goldenberg writes that this story has been used as the single greatest justification for black slavery for more than a thousand years. Let me be blunt to use this portion of the Bible to justify a twisted view that one particular race is inferior and that therefore the ownership, possession of fellow human beings is justified is straight out of the pit of hell. There's no other way to put it. It is straight out of the pit of hell to use the truth of God's word to justify and even encourage in some pockets of our history that kind of behavior. Reading the Bible, even these strange pieces that we come across, like this morning's passage, reading the Bible and faithfully interpreting it, there is no more important life-giving pursuit, not only for this life, but for the life to come. By the way, we also don't know why the curse was on one grandson's line and not on Ham himself as the one who committed the sin. His other sons and their lines of descent, listed in Genesis chapter 10, 15 verses worth of it, will produce people groups who will become Israel's worst enemies, like the Philistines, the Egyptians who enslaved them for over 400 years. Even the Babylonians and Assyrians who will destroy the nation and cart off many of its people into exile for two generations. Those genealogies in chapter 10 give us a glimpse of the incredible exponential impact of ungodliness and unfaithfulness in one generation. That's what we can take away from, uh, one thing we can take away from that picture of Genesis chapter 10. Exodus 34, Deuteronomy 5, both affirm that sin has an impact to the third and fourth generation. Sin is like PFAs. If you're on Ridgewood water like we are, you know what those are. They call them forever chemicals. You ingest them into your body and they don't break down in a lifetime. They don't dissipate. They stick around This picture of one son's sin leading to family lines of ungodliness. Parents, of all the things you could be concerned about in the future of your children, the one thing, the one aspect that should keep you up at night and prompt you to get on your knees in prayer 
over and over is pointing them to Jesus, is their spiritual health. I saw this headline this week and didn't bother to read it because it, it communicated all I needed to know. The headline was this, upper middle class kids are getting rejected from Ivy League schools and their parents are freaking out. And if you're in that realm of life, you, you, you'd say, I get it. Can I simply say this, a little more bluntness on a May 1st Sunday morning? If you are a follower of Christ and you have kids, this other attitude should also be in the mix. I'm not saying you shouldn't be concerned about your kids getting into a good school, but this other attitude should also be in the mix. So what? So what? My kid didn't get into a top school. Are your hopes and dreams for your children not aimed higher than a particular higher education context? There is no more important value in the raising of the next generation than pointing them to Jesus, to rest in his love for them and for them to respond in a a joyful obedience back to him. There's nothing more important. In the mix should be, so what? And if you're not a parent, by the way, you also have a role to play within the family of God, investing in the next generation's spiritual vitality, and the church provides all kinds of opportunities should you be wondering what that looks like. Talk to Steve, talk to me, um, talk to our children's ministry and our youth leaders. We close with a focus on the line of Shem, which is actually the focus of the next chapter. The middle of verse 27 is interesting. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem. This isn't a, you know, home-sharing arrangement, you know, two-family two, two dwelling. That's not what it's about at all. What, who are the peoples that descend from the line of Japheth? Well, that, that preacher actually got it right. The, uh, this has been the prevailing sense from looking at the people groups and how they migrated. But chapter 10, verse 5 tells us that the line of Japheth were a maritime people. They were seafarers. These are the nations that will populate the Mediterranean world. And the New Testament would simply call them the Gentiles. It's most of us. This is a spiritual promise that the nations will share in the inheritance of the Shemites. Does that sound familiar? The Semitic people you hear about you know, being anti-Semitic. What does that mean? You, you, you have a bias against the Jews. The Semites are the Shemites. They're from the line of Shem, one of Noah's sons. The Hebrews, the Jews. Genesis 10 will later describe the nations, peoples of the earth, descended from Noah. Later on, these people's names are associated with nation-states, Right? Egypt is one of the grandsons. We, we know it as a, as a country, as a culture. These names 
connected to nation states will, will later, of course, be connected to particular places in the world, geography. And they will be given, over time, labels of race and ethnicity. But the reality that unites all peoples, whatever shade of skin color, whatever color of your eyes, hair, whatever uh, accent you may or may not have or your grandparents may have had, whatever countries you would trace your heritage back to, real unity is recovered, keyword, only through the reconciling power of Jesus Christ. Paul writes in Galatians chapter 3, verses 28 through 29, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ by faith, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Who are Abraham's offspring? Most people would say the Jews and the Muslims. Paul, in the first century, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says, if you believe in Jesus, if you are in Christ, you are Abraham's true offspring. And you stand to inherit the promises God made to him, starting in Genesis chapter 12. And we'll see that in a couple of weeks. Japheth dwelling in the tents of Shem, whose line will lead to Abraham in Genesis 11 and eventually to the Messiah, Jesus. This is the truest story of one God redeeming one people for himself through one means, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the gospel according to Genesis. Let's pray. Lord, make us heavenly-minded to keep the end in mind to glory in your promise of an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. It's all access, not because we deserve it, but through faith in Jesus. Preserve us for that day. Strengthen us in the here and now to serve you well, to delight in you above all else. Let the things of this world grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.